So tonight, uh, we're going to be in Acts 4, a title uh, like such might uh, be a little bit provocative, but we're going to be talking about the disciples as they face trial for their uh, association with this movement that has been outlawed with this man that had been killed, and yet they're still preaching in his name, and they're still spreading his words around, and that does not land well with the people that tried to eliminate him and his movement, and here we are in Acts 4, um, it's still going, it's still moving, God is still moving, and the church is just growing, it's just beginning. I love this Bible study, I love preaching through Acts, I cannot wait to, uh, every week, I look forward to these Sunday night services, especially because I know God's got something good to say to us, and thankful for y'all being here to be, uh, to, to hear God's word and to, to look to God's word. So we covered Acts 3 last week, can you believe it, one, one chapter in one week, what a novel idea, we're going to try to get through most of 4 tonight, it's kind of too big to deal with in one, one, one sitting, but we'll get through uh, down to verse 30, 33. Um, but we covered Acts 3, which is the first of many episodes throughout Acts, which really just spotlights a day in the life of the early Christians. And from their activities, uh, a bigger uh, thing kind of is launched and a bigger conversation, sermons and, 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 and crises come together. Um, so Acts 3 begins, the disciples are just doing what the disciples do. They're being faithful, they're serving, they're being present in their communities, they are persistent in being witnesses, and they're prepared for whatever comes before them. So we watched them uh, last time come be approached by a man who had a need. Of course, he had a greater need than he realized, and they provided that to him. Uh, and all that stemmed from this burden that they had, this passion they had. Uh, God called them to be witnesses. He called them to be, uh, to be on mission, and they had a burden and a passion to follow that, uh, uh, to, be fulfill, to fulfill that calling, to be faithful to that calling. They were burdened for lost people, passionate for the gospel, um, and that launched them to a place where they got to show up and share Jesus with whomever came their way, particularly last time, that lame man at the gate near uh, the temple. Now, we ended last time building off our list of questions. I'm not going to throw all those questions at you again, but if you wrote them down before, you should re reference those as we go forward. Because we, we asked a couple weeks ago, we asked some questions that are going to guide us and steer us in our approach in Acts. Um, basically saying, hey, are we in the same spirit that the disciples were? Are we willing to do what they did? Are we prepared and, and, and are we um, open for God to use us as he was, uh, as they were for him? So last week we closed around a couple questions and I'll kind of throw them together uh, to get us started. Are we available and are we open for Jesus to show up and work through us? And that's a simple question, yes or no. Are we available and open for Jesus to show up, maybe even distract us from what we were going to be involved with in the day, maybe detour us to another direction than we were planning on? Are we available, are we open for Jesus to show up in our lives and work through us? Uh, are we present for him? And as in, do we take our role in our worlds, our jobs, our communities, do we take those roles serious enough to know that we are on mission for God? Are we present? Are we persistent? And are we prepared for the opportunities that God opens for us uh, and, and, and every one of us? Now, as we move into chapter four, it's going to become very apparent why Luke chose to spotlight the story from three, because this story isn't over yet. And this story really is going to take us through the end of chapter five. That's how big uh, that really random act of kindness was. That's all the dominoes that it kind of knocked over. Uh, this story is going to add to the complexities of the questions that we've been asking about our willingness and about our openness to serve God. Because in this next chapter, a whole new barrier appears in front of us. One that you probably can see coming. You probably know what it is if you've read the book before, but one that still is very challenging. 
Now, we can talk about why we don't accomplish the same things as the disciples. You know, the, the, the whole uh, idea of why are we not like the early church is not something I came up with. It's not a question I started asking. It's not something that has been around for 10, 20, 30 years. Ever since 100 years after the church began, um, the church leaders have been saying, hey, what's different between us and them? Because they got things done. They were, they were on mission. They were always doing things when it seemed like it was impossible. Why are we not measuring up to what they were accomplishing? So we can talk about why all night long, and we have all sorts of different uh, reasons to give. Ultimately, it boils down to one thing. There's one reason why we don't accomplish the same things the disciples did. And I'm not judging anybody but myself here. It boils down to one word, the cost. There is a cost in serving Jesus. There is a cost in putting him and his church first. There is a cost in glorifying the kingdom of God above everything else in our life. That's just the reality of it. This was the subject that Jesus talked about a lot. It's easy to preach about. It's hard to actually do. And of course, it's hard to actually hear, isn't it? Now, let me just clue y'all in. Anytime I preach messages about the cost of following Jesus and obeying Jesus and serving Jesus, confronting our excuses, confronting our priorities, our schedules, our kingdoms, I just want to make y'all make it clear to y'all, it's not easy for me. Okay, it's painful. I have to, you know, y'all just have to deal with 30 minutes of this. I got to deal with, you know, 30 hours of this. Literally, all throughout, all week long, I'm confronted with these things, and I'm thinking, do I really have to talk about this? Because I can't hypocritically get up here and say these things without, you know, at least believing in myself. I'm not going to say I always do everything that I try to say we should do, but I know I'm more accountable than you are, right? Because I'm the one up here presenting it. So it's painful for me to get up here and, and, and talk about this stuff, not because I don't want to do it or don't think it's necessary, but because I know how necessary it is. Now, the perks of the Spirit of God, if I come across as if I've already figured this out, hey, then that's because that's God can make anybody look good, but there's plenty of room I have to grow, and I think that goes for all of us. But we've talked plenty before about the sermons of Jesus because he did it a lot. He preached them a lot. The sermons of Jesus where he talks about the invitation to take part in his kingdom and how we often deem the cost too great, as in we as in the people in the parables, but we as well. We often deem the cost to serving God and putting God first too great, as if we just can't do it. I mean, we want to, we really, really, really want to, we intend to, we want to get around to it, but it, and it's not that we're being selfish with, with our lives, it's just we got a lot going on, you know, and it's just too much of a cost, too great of a cost to do what Jesus says we should do. But what we've learned and what we'll continue to learn is the greatest loss is not what we might have given up. The greatest loss is the missed opportunity to serve God if we don't follow Jesus. That is the greatest cost. Now, we heard sermon after sermon on that, but we've heard the parable of the banquet where the father or the master says, hey, everybody's invited, but everybody says, hey, I'm too busy. And then the father says, everything is ready. Go into the highways and hedges and invite everybody. The one said that he'd bought a field, another bought some oxen, the other had gotten married. All these big life events, legitimate responsibilities, God-given opportunities. Yet still, they were not worth making more precious and more important than our calling to serve God's kingdom. And that's difficult to parse through, isn't it? That's different, difficult to figure out, isn't it? But what we learn and what we should know 
All our blessings are meant to facilitate and be used to serve God's kingdom. All those things that those people used as excuses were, were godly things. They were things that God gave people, family, opportunity, jobs, possessions, things that were gifts from God. But woe unto us. Woe unto us if the blessings of God become obstacles and excuses we used in serving or to keep from serving God. Now, if you'll remember that parable, Jesus ended it with some pretty strong words. Again, these are his words, not mine. Luke 14, Jesus said, Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot, cannot be my disciple. He said, you can try it. But you're going to be too distracted doing other things that you won't be able to follow me because if you're going to follow me, you've got to unfollow some other things. That's just kind of how it works, isn't it? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, and this is so crazy, who in the, who in the world in the first century that was following Jesus was going to build a tower? They lived in shacks. I mean, they weren't going to build a tower. And this is how Jesus, I think he's playing with our, with our own you know, ideas about things. Because we think that what God is trying to build is just too big for us, too much for us. It's impossible. Who are, which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete, complete it. Now, he's saying, hey, a lot of us, we just don't think we've got it in us. And, and we don't think we've got you know, the time or the opportunities Yet we will go about our lives and we will spend and we will invest, we will exhaust ourselves building kingdoms for ourselves, won't we? Not sparing the cost. But what he says to us about the kingdom of God is it's something greater than we could ever imagine and we could ever endeavor to build on our own. And we don't want to be halfway in. We don't just want to be partially in. But we must count the cost. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him and say, what you started, you did not finish. A lot of people make bold confessions and proclamations, but very few of us follow through on those statements. Jesus, again, confronting us with a harsh reality that we often say we want to do one thing for God, but life gets in the way, doesn't it? And Jesus isn't letting us get away with this. He isn't letting us not, you know, he wants us to wrestle with this. He made a conclusion at the end of that. So therefore, any one of you, again, he might, Jesus, I love when Jesus, he knows what he's doing. He's a brilliant communicator. There are times when Jesus is very broad with his, with his uh, pronouns and, with his, you know, and when he's addressing people. But when he needs to be, he's very specific. And when he's very specific, do not try to put other words in his mouth. It's nothing work out good. So any of you, any of you, who does not renounce, again, we, we see this extreme use of language, any of you, all that he has. So again, he's saying, hey, anybody, all of you is included in this. All that you have could possibly keep you from being where you need to be with me. All that you have may keep you from being all that God wants you to be. So again, if that makes you uncomfortable, if it makes you kind of just squirm a little bit, hey, I'm there with you, that's, that's okay. And it's important we're looking at this from Luke because Luke is writing Acts. So all this is influencing the, Luke's narrative and, and how the events would take place. The disciples who heard Jesus preach this are now living this. Whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, that Greek, the Greek for all that he has can range from one's possessions to one's identity, that what we are, who we are. So not only does this mean our passions and our luxuries, but it also deals with what Acts 4 is going to bring to the surface. And all this is, I'm bringing all this up for a purpose. That to give up all that we have is to give up that which makes us feel secure. 
that which makes us feel comfortable and safe. Because perhaps the cost that doesn't get talked about enough is the physical and literal cost that often comes from following Jesus and how it terrifies us. It's okay to admit it. It terrifies us to think we might actually have to suffer for his cause. Jesus, of course, foretold of this on one occasion. The disciples asked him about the end times. So he talked about them with all the signs that the earth would, would, would show, the groaning for redemption as observed through natural signs and through the kingdoms that wage war. And Jesus, again, is very blunt when he talks about this. He's very honest about what their very generation would face, not as a sign of the end times, but as a sign of the cost that would always be present when following him. Last passage before we get to Acts, but pay attention to this very closely. Jesus says, before all this will happen, before all the end times, before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. I mean, they're not going to lay their hands on you to play, pray for you is what he's saying. <laughs> they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. The very people that should be for you, the synagogues, they're going to be against you. And they'll put you in the prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors. But don't worry, it's for me. That's supposed to make us feel better. It doesn't. For my name's sake, you're going to be arrested. So congratulations, great is your reward in heaven. And it's going to be a fun time on earth. For my name's sake, you're going to be brought before the, these people. This will be your opportunity. Again, he's so generous, isn't he? I mean, your opportunity. Well, I was looking for an opportunity to, 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 to represent you, Jesus, especially in court, especially in prison, especially on trial, especially at the point of death. I was waiting for that opportunity. Thank you so much. We don't do that, do we? We don't think, that's not what we're ready to thank God for. But he says, not, he's being serious. I shouldn't make, this, make light of this because he's being as serious as he can be. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. As in, you need to go ahead, go into these moments. I mean, who gets ready for this? I mean, do we sit around and think, well, okay, God, when I'm arrested for doing something for you that the, somebody says is unlawful, I mean, I'm ready for it. None of us are ready for this. They weren't either. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I mean, Jesus, can't you just get rid of my adversaries? I mean, we talked about this before, but can I, I, mean, I don't think this is wrong to talk about. I mean, can't you get rid of my adversaries so I don't have to have a mouth and wisdom to confront my adversaries? I mean, that'd be the better option. I mean, isn't there a verse that says you'll do that? I mean, that would be what I would prefer. But nonetheless, he says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. I mean, very specific. But with friends like these, who needs enemies? Some of you, they will put to death. And somebody's thinking, well, maybe not all of us. I mean, you know, Jesus is, again, he's usually, he's very bold about the all and the any. So in this occasion, he just says some. Maybe we'll be the lucky few. He says, put to death. You will be hated by, by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. I mean, hey, that's a relief, isn't it? Yeah. Unless you don't have any hair, and then what do, you, what do you got going on there? Again, I, got, I try to make light, because this is going to get rough later. Hold on. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Well, I mean, hey, Jesus, I'm already alive. I don't need to be hated and arrested, and betrayed, and beaten, and <laughs> brought before courts. I, I'm alive now. I mean, the way I look at it, if I go through all that stuff, I'm going to be less alive. I might even not be alive. And Jesus grins as he sees us wrestle through this because we're missing the point. 
Because we think we're alive. We think we've got it all figured out and got everything as perfect as it should be. And yet he says there is a life waiting for us that we have not even begun to imagine. Now the disciples, they really didn't get a chance to volunteer for this. They just kind of got voluntold to do this. And then next thing you know it, hey, they're in these moments. And we're about to read about them being in this very moment that Jesus said they would face. But I know what you're asking. Why does the world have to resist us? Why is there strife? Because our world has fallen. Easy answer, but that's the truth. Our world pushes back against redemption. The enemy does not want to let go. And quite frankly, God uses this tension to test us. To see how much indeed we do value, how much more we value him and his kingdom. I believe that's definitely the case. Now here's the thing. Not everybody will count the cost. And maybe you're here tonight and you're thinking, well... I mean, not everybody has to be this extreme of a Christian, do they, Justin? No, you don't have to be. I know I preach this stuff like it's supposed to be everybody. Maybe it should be. But not everybody has to, it will. Not everyone's going to count the cost and cause a great impact or claim a great blessing. But those who do will know that they certainly gained more than they gave. Many will not count the cost because they fear losing more than they would ever get back. But those who do, they know, even though they may give a lot, they will gain far much more. I got to ask you before we finish this, what do you do with this? I mean, mean, if you're you're uneasy with this, hey, I'm here with you. I mean, of course we're afraid. Of course no one's excited about the prospect of loss or suffering in any way. I mean, we don't like to suffer from cultural perspective, much less in a literal way. I mean, isn't it true? And I don't mean to make light of our feelings, but we feel persecuted when the hot now light goes off before we get there. I mean, Krispy Kreme, right? I mean, we feel persecuted when somebody takes our parking spot. You know, we assume that they did it because we're a Christian. I and mean, that's probably not why they did it, but maybe they did. I don't know. The devil knows some stuff. We feel persecuted when very small things happen to us. And again, I'm not trying to make light. That's just kind of how our nature is. We feel like people are kind of out to get us. So Lord knows we, won't, we would not take actual suffering very well, would we? We feel marginalized when politics don't go our way. So how would we handle potential actual martyrdom? Not very, right? Now again, I'm not asking for it. I'm not hoping for it. I will confess my spiritual immaturity. I am praying to avoid it. Any sort of pain, any sort of suffering, any sort of ridicule, I don't want to deal with any of it. I'm... I'm all the way out of that if I can be. But it doesn't mean it won't come or it wouldn't be God's will for, uh, for it to come. And more importantly, when whether it comes or not, literal or real accounts of it happening ought to make us think twice about what we've actually had to go through and given up or following what following Christ does cost us. And, but what if, what if it does cost us in a flesh and blood real sort of way? Where do we stand with this? Again, there are questions we have to consider as we make our way into Acts because the next few chapters are all about a church that deal with this for the very first time. But you know how they deal with it? You know what describes their approach to this potential demise of their entire movement and most importantly their lives? They face it with absolute fearlessness. And they were just like me and you. They were just like, I mean, let me, let me just put this in perspective for you. 50 days or so before this happened, Peter had quit church. He was cussing 
people in Jesus' name. He was denying that he knew Jesus. I mean, a couple weeks before he was fearless, he was faithless. So if you, you say, well, I'll never be a Peter. Listen, I don't think anybody's ever done that here. Maybe you have, but hey, you're back. That's great. So don't think that you can't have the same fearlessness that Peter had because Peter went directions that we would never go in on the other, other side. So I think you're capable of far much more than you realize. Now, what was their secret? Well, we've been listening. Uh, well, we've been listening. It's not much of a secret. Or if we've been listening... And Acts 1 through 4, Acts 4, 1 through 4 gives us their secret. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, so it was, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about five. Thousands. So these few verses give us a summary of all that was going on in these early days, and it clues us in on how and why they were so fearless. First thing, though, the Jewish leaders were very annoyed that the Jesus movement, that they tried to stop, they killed the leader, by, by, I mean, you would think if they killed the leader, they killed the movement, but they killed the leader and the movement grew. They were very annoyed the movement was growing. Whether they killed the leader was up for debate. People claimed he was still alive. These people claimed he was still alive. But there was no denying the movement was growing. It came to life after Jesus was gone. That was not the plan. In all reality, Jesus wasn't gone at all. The Jewish leaders felt like he was haunting them. His presence was so real you could feel it. When in reality, his spirit was alive, moving through the church, and they loudly and without hesitation proclaimed that Jesus was alive, that he raised up from the grave and promised the same sort of eternal life to all who believed. They had received this resurrection spirit. They preached that they were just beginning to live, and that explains their fearlessness, as it says in verse 2. They preached the resurrection from the dead. When you see a man get back out of the grave and show you that there's nothing to fear from the worst and most horrific scene you could ever imagine through the cross, they watched him die, they watched him be buried, they had supper with him three days later. Why would they ever be afraid anymore? The resurrection spirit, coupled with what they saw, had raised them up from fear. What they had experienced, they had no reason to be afraid. Now, maybe you have a reason to be afraid. They had reasons to be afraid, but they had a greater reason to fear not. Their faith in God's promise resulted in fearless power working through them. And this power was shown through their preaching and proclamation of Jesus. This power was working through their ministry, resulting in church growing exponentially. But it also resulted in their being arrested, being imprisoned, and brought before the courts. Not part of the plan, right? Now look at verse 5 through 7. This is important information, clerical information nonetheless, but important. It came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. When they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now these names are important because these were the same people, if you read John, uh, John's gospel, John 18, 19, these are the same people that sentenced Jesus to death. So they had the same power to sentence the disciples to death, didn't they? Now, secretly, they're very angry and afraid they couldn't stop the movement, and outwardly, they're trying to scare the disciples into backing down by raising their fists and saying that, hey, we killed your leader, we'll kill you. 
They gave him a chance to denounce Jesus because Jesus' death made preaching Jesus and following him a high crime and misdemeanor, as they say. But of course, Peter always had a sermon ready to go. And Peter takes the floor in verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, I know who you are, guys. Caiaphas, I know who you are, buddy. You crucified him, but God raised him by, from the dead, and by him this man stands here before you whole. So, hey, I know who you are. Don't, you don't have to pretend to be somebody big and bad. You crucified him. Yeah, you did that, but then God raised him back up. What do you got against that? What do you got on that? And then he raised this man back up from being lame. So, again, y'all are trying to scare us. I mean, hey, what do y'all have against our God? Yeah, you can kill us, but you can't stop us. That is a fear. It takes, that would scare anyone, being in the presence of that sort of fearlessness. Verse 11, Peter says, This stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, and I love, there, there's no way for me to articulate or demonstrate how big verse 12 is. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Oh, by the way, by which we have been saved. So Peter is here before them. They're trying to threaten them. They're trying to declare them guilty and silence them and, and even kill them. Peter makes it known that, it, that they were merely members of the body of Christ, vessels and instruments of the presence and power of God, whom they tried to eliminate but was alive and more present than ever before, or is alive and more present. He confirms that while they may still reject Jesus, they are woefully rejecting the cornerstone of their lives but the biggest part of his defense, as they are about to be declared guilty for breaking the law, Peter says, I know where y'all going with this. I mean, we stand before you, condemned by your law, ostracized by culture, pitied by society, but let me go ahead and clear this up for you. We stand before God saved. And you can take everything else away from us. You can crucify us. You can stone us. You can eliminate us from the history books. But you will not take away from us what God has given us. And that is salvation. From sin and from death. From waste and from fear. From meaninglessness and from hopelessness. What may cost us before you and what may cost us in this life means our gain in salvation with God and in the life to come. Does that register with you how big of a statement that is? We may look guilty of breaking your law, but what that means is that we have been guilty of bearing God's presence. And we're okay with that. Now, this is the kind of stuff that, you're, that you really like to write and say, but you don't ever want to be on trial and actually have to mean it, right? But Peter meant it, didn't he? So be it. Thank God that it is obvious before all of you that we are guilty of following Jesus because what you determined as guilty and doomed, God had, has declared as saved and as free. We are free to live a different life, not consumed with preserving and protecting, grabbing on or holding on, fighting for and clenching to this world. We have been given freedom from all those things. And yes, we want to live as long as he wants us to live, but we aren't going to try to protect anything that's God's alone 
to be sovereign over. We have been filled with true and abundant life. And where there was greed, there is now gratitude. Where there was fear, there is now faith. Where there was panic, there is now peace. Where there was consumption and a life about me, my, and I, now there is a life of contentment with what God provides. All these things are not normal for mere mortals to embody, which was well detected by and confessed by the courts. I mean, just listen to their response. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized, we haven't seen this kind of fearlessness since we crucified Jesus. And clearly these men have been with him, and we don't mean two, three weeks ago, we mean right now. And seeing the men who had been healed standing with them, they could not say anything. They could say nothing against it. And when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a noble miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. That'll silence them. So they called them and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. At this point, they don't know what to do with these men. They know this is a toothless sentence. They just threaten them and hope that they are quiet about it, but they know they're not going to be. They know, they know they can't prevent them from living out their faith, and I love Peter and John's response. <laughs> Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Y'all think, y'all can probably figure out where we stand on that, but go ahead and entertain yourself. We have, but we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, people love to quote this verse out of context and say it's an excuse to disobey the law and do whatever they decide is right with them and God. But do you hear what Peter and John are saying? This isn't about them claiming some divine privilege to disobey man. This is about them surrendering their privilege and committing to sacrifice in order to God. They were given a chance to walk away and not be arrested and not suffer any consequences. They just say, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. The courts were ready to say, y'all just get out of here, wink, wink, don't talk about Jesus anymore. But Peter said, hey, you're not going to get the last word on me. We are going to be as bold and loud as ever. You can go ahead and count on that. And we know it's going to cost us. We know, we know, we know. We're okay with that. They were committing to living lives that honor God by preaching his name and honoring him with their lives. In verse 21, so, they went, so when they had further threatened them and let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what he had done. I mean, these people are just completely out of their minds. What are we going to do with them? And the man that was over 40 years old, whom this miracle of healing had been performed, he was there with them, so there was no denying that God had been working. They praise God for the privilege to testify before courts. They praise God for the privilege to defer their wills, to perform God's will. And here's where we kind of end up. Does this describe us? Are we guilty of doing whatever it takes to honor God like these men? You see, the big question is, the big question here isn't, will we defy authorities to honor God? It really begins with a greater question. See, we'll defy, we'll defy authorities to honor our own wills. I mean, we, we won't think twice about, breaking, about saying, hey, authority, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do what I, I'm free to do. We'll do that in a minute. But will we defy ourselves to honor God's will? That's the question. Because that's what we witness Peter and John do in this text. They know what this is going to cost them. And they've made the decision. And they aren't turning back now 
I encourage you to read the next part of this chapter because woohoo, next week is going to be real fun. Uh, I was going to close with it, but we're out of time because the, these just completely beside themselves men of God go back to church later that day and their prayer will leave us speechless. But I'm pretty much already left speechless by their actions, by their boldness and by their determination to honor God even if and especially when it costs them. Do we have this kind of faith? Do we have, the, and this isn't faith, I'm going to stand up here and it's going to happen the way I want it to happen. This is faith, I'm going to put my hands, put my life into God's hands. Do we have this sort of deference that God's will is worth it, even if it costs us everything? Peter says, whether it's right or not, you figure that out. But we can't stop. We can't stop even if it costs us everything. Because the way we figured this out, if it costs us everything, there's still something better waiting on us. We watched a man get out of the grave. When you see the movie we watched, there's nothing going to stop you. We believe that the resurrection power of God is still at work. I love their boldness, and I pray that God would just give us a drop of it because we could change the world if we just had a little bit of it in today's time. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you for this opportunity to just uh, marvel at the men of God who were willing to put it all on the line, who were willing to stand up in front of people that had the power and the authority over them, and they looked them in the eyes and said, listen, we're serving a higher power, we're serving a higher cause, we're serving a higher law, and we know what God can do, and you don't scare us, and we're not going to bow down to you because we're bowing down to our God. And though you may condemn us, God has said we're justified. Though you may try to take our lives away, God has given us a life that cannot be taken away. So you condemn us and you may cancel us and you may cast us out, but God has called us saved. We may be guilty before you of breaking your law, but we are guilty before God of being obedient. We're guilty of being associated with Jesus and that is the greatest indictment this world can put on us. So God, I pray we might would consider what it means to be guilty of being affiliated and associated and around Jesus. And may the world get a full dose and measure of that sort of experience this week when we go to the world and we show them the God that we serve and obey him above everything else. God, we love you. Give us this kind of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.